Kia Uruatia. To fight like a shark. Te teetzi e te rahi e te maria e whakarongo pikari ana ki tēnei hōtaka, nau piki mai, nau kake mai ki te ahikā. This week we join Australia's ABC Radio National Programme, Earshot, produced by Gretchen Miller. Samoan and Palangi poet Tutsiata Avia was born in Christchurch. She's a poet, an author, and she's performed both nationally and overseas. Her poetry is described as confrontational and entertaining, raw and lyrical. Coming up, you'll hear poetry from Avia's books Wild Dogs Under My Skirt, published in 2004, and Blood Clot, published in 2009. The theme of her poetry delves into her stance in two worlds, being Samoan and Palangi. Here, she talks about finding, or not finding, that balance. I guess I kind of live in that ambivalent space. And it's something when I was younger that I used to find really difficult because I guess I felt I had to live in one space or the other, either in the white New Zealand Palangi world or the Samoan one. But I've come to realise that, of course, I belong to both and I belong to neither in a way. And because of this position that I find myself in, it does kind of make me a bit of an outsider. And that I have a foot in each world, but I'm a little outside of each world as well. So it gives me a good perspective, I think. That's the perfect place for a writer to be in lots of ways, isn't it? It is. The observational voice. Although there's a melancholy, I think, to that positioning too. Oh, definitely. I was very tortured about it when I was younger because when I was a teenager, I kind of actively didn't want to be someone and I tried very hard to fit into, you know, this kind of white New Zealand culture and that didn't really work so well. And then I did a complete about-face when I was 20 and I moved to Samoa and that was my bid to kind of find myself as a Samoan. And, of course, over there I felt even more that I didn't fit there either. So they've been important experiences and they've kind of taught me that, in a way, I don't belong to either completely. And I guess, yes, there is there is some kind of sadness and melancholy that comes with that. My first time in Samoa. Our passport photos. Mine, purple lipstick. My sister's thin, thin eyebrows like bad surprises. The heat, of course. That was the first thing. And the smell, wet, like semen. They picked us up from the airport in a truck. We sat, wind cooling our sweat, and watched houses with no walls pass by. 
We looked in at pyramids of tinned corned beef stacked on shelves. Hey, what are they? Shops, they said. We scratched in the village. Too hot, too stink. We hated going to the toilet. Our legs bled. If you could choose, would you rather stay here for a whole year or sleep with Mr Muldoon? Apia, Tusitala Hotel Bar, New Year's Eve. Tin, gin and lemonades puked up in the potted palms unconscious on a deck chair while our cousin tried to get into my sister's pants. Okay, what about this one then? Would you rather stay here for six months or marry a Samoan? When did your poetic voice make itself known? Well, actually, I started writing poems when I was about 10, but I shut that down quite quickly when I was about 15 because I became really aware that girls like me, that is, brown girls from Christchurch, don't become poets. So I didn't come back to poetry until I was in my 30s. What strikes me about what you say there is with all of those influences, your poetry could be an angry poetry. And while I think it's a very powerful poetry, I think there's a great deal of compassion in it as well. There's anger, but it's not of the limbs flailing variety. Mm, Maybe that was a good thing to come to poetry later. I may have been more arms flailing as a younger poet. Ole B tau tau. R is for Afakasi. R is for Afakasi child left at the crossroads. Who will save her from the snakes? Who will save her from the darkness? E. E is for Elena. Elena is my auntie's name. I call her auntie. E. Sunga, you don't know nothing. Eh, my bee, you still beast in a bed. I have to listen to her because I am young and don't know about life. E, E is for Ipuki. Tsunga, I file Ipuki. Yawning, I shuffle off to the kitchen to make sweet tea and pankeke. I bow my back past the visitor the best cups from the cabinet clinking, clinking. The visitor admires auntie's white plastic doilies and watches me hungrily. O. O is for Ola. O is for Ola. The woman who gave me life is a Paumuku living somewhere in Apia. My father was a Baalangi. No one knows him. I should be grateful to be alive, to have a good life, to live in New Zealand. I should be grateful. U. U is for Ulu. Auntie says 
Don't leave my hair out. Tie it in a knot and don't comb my hair at night time. Eh, if you comb your hair at night time, bad things will happen. The Aiku will come and get you. Fa. Fa is for Faithi Ao. Our minister holds his palms up to the congregation. Lomato Tama Olilangi. Save us from the sins of the flesh. They are pink like spam. Nga. Nga is for Ngata. Nga is for Ngata who slips under our door and winds himself around my legs and squeezes and squeezes. La. La is for La Upele. La is for La Upele who will save me from snakes and moikolo. He will come like Jesus. He will come like the rock. He will save me from the baddies. Mo. Mo is for Moikolo. Mo is for Moikolo, who slips his hard hand under my lava lava. Auntie snores, he breathes and slides his finger up. I watch the darkness. No. No is for Nusila. I am very lucky. I can go to the good school. I can get the good education and the good job and help my family. I am very lucky. P. P is for Penty. I hide them under the bed. Auntie is still sleeping. I lie down and match my breath to hers. Sa. Sa is for slut. I know what it means. It means baumuku, like my mother. T. T is for tenelele. T is for tenelele, good girl. And T is for teneleanga, bad girl. V. V is for virgin. Mary was a virgin, and God was her husband. But Joseph was her husband, and Jesus was her baby. But Jesus is God. Hair. Hair is for Herod. Hair is for Herod, who tried to kill the Lord, who washed away our sins. I wash my panty in the shower. I wash it with the polo. I wash it with the soap. Where did all the blood come from? Ka. Ka is for Kilikiti. Ka is for Kilikiti at the park. The whole Aukalavo, the whole church is there. Auntie yells and yells at me. Run! Run! I have the ball, but I can't run. My peepee hurts. Ro. Ro is for the rock. 
the rock, picks up the baby, and holds him over his head. I watch and wait for the baby's head to break. This piece has recurring characters who who come back in other poems of yours. The Rock, for example. What was he? Tell me about him. Well, The Rock is actually a guy called Dwayne Johnson, and he is Samoan African-American, and he is a WWF wrestler, and he is really kind of highly looked up to. Samoan's tend to really claim him as our own. And he has a really close association and pride in his Samoan culture. And I guess for the little girl in this poem, he is kind of her saviour. He's the one that can save her from this horrible situation that she's in. And Auntie. The thing about Auntie is that she's so close to what's going on. Tell me about the Auntie figure. Yeah, she's just a nasty piece of work, basically. She's really modelled after so many aunties. She's a bit of a stereotype, but I'm afraid to say that I do know aunties like this who are just quite bitter and mean. They have their own backstory of disappointment and heartbreak, but the thing about this auntie is that she really takes it out on the children and she's violent and cruel. And the other thing about the auntie, I suppose, it could be a literal auntie, or is it also just a term for a um, an older woman who's close to a family or connected in some way? But I guess really in Samoan culture, it doesn't actually matter. Those kind of relationships, they're not about how closely related you are in actual fact because ainga or extended family is just the same as your nuclear family. Three reasons for sleeping with a white man. (laughs) Tussie. I thought it would be like a border crossing. I slept with him and dreamt I was sleeping with him and waking in a room full of children wearing European shoes. Lua. I thought he might rub off on me. I slept with him and dreamt he was calling me his Polynesian princess. On the wall, the velvet maiden turns a green shoulder, repositions her hibiscus and smiles. Tolu, I thought, eh, what the hell, and opened my legs, not my eyes. I dreamt I was leaving his house and all my family was standing outside. My cousin married to her American pilot, my mother, my brother, looking like a Māori. I kissed them all. They kissed me back, even my brother. I asked them what they were doing. They asked me, Sunga, what are you doing? It's a great poem. Tell me about the family's question. It is a funny thing because it is that, on one hand, being with a white man has status, 
But on the other hand, what the hell do you think you're doing sleeping with a white man? But it's also being a slut. Like, what do you think you're doing just sleeping with someone and a white man into the bargain? Talk about the sexuality that brims over in your writing. I almost wonder if you're sometimes surprised by that voice that makes itself known. Yeah, I guess part of that is because, you know, I've always felt that sense of suppression, I suppose. And part of that is, I don't know, being a a Samoan girl and Samoan woman, there are a lot of things that are taboo and you are expected to be a good girl. And um, God knows I've tried, but I'm just deeply not. So there's always been that tension. There's a lot of violence. There's no getting away from the violence in your poems. It's shocking. But what I find interesting is how you observe the violence. Even if you're writing in the voice of the violated, it's almost as if the speaker is simultaneously experiencing it and is outside themselves watching. You know, I have to take that position. It would be no good to be arms flailing. What kind of comes to mind is when I was writing my first book, I wrote quite a lot of it in Samoa. And, you know, I just had these examples of violence all around me because I was with my family. And that's how we roll, you know. So I was really writing to something. It was my way of being able to have a voice, even if no one else could hear it at the time. But it's something I feel really strongly about, particularly violence towards children, which unfortunately is really prevalent in so many Samoan families. Brother. I tell my brother about the boy at school. I make him tickle my back, and when he stops, I tell him about the boy at school who can do it the best in the world. My brother and I are Siamese twins. I graft him to me, his pyjama holes to my buttons, and we sleep face to face. When they try to lift me out, I keep my eyes shut. My mother has to call for help. The surgeon is delayed till morning. Dad's army. When Grandpa comes on Thursdays, when they are at counselling, he watches Dad's army. My brother and I eat pancakes. I tell him how stupid he is, how much I hate him, and how I have hollowed out little caverns in the pancakes and filled them with ants. At 7pm on Wednesday night, when the love boat is on, they ask me who I think should get the house. I make my brother an ice cream sundae with secret passages for the resistance to hide. I fill them with curry and chilli and shoe polish. My brother goes missing. I check front yard, backyard, park, neighbours, wardrobes, bathroom, toilet, wash house. I know deep down he is dead and I am a bad person. I even ring my mother at Weight Watchers. He turns up 
in the warming cupboard. My brother does not know what a magistrate is. We go to the Muppet movie and then ice castles and then Bambi again. My brother eats too many ice castles and falls asleep. We walk back to the courthouse which is by the tea rooms and I eat a custard square. My brother goes next door. The girlfriend comes round and won't go away and threatens to cut her wrists with the windows or mayonnaise jars. I tell my brother to go next door and stay there. I tell her to go ahead and kill herself, but first get in the taxi, just get in the taxi. My brother lives in a student flat. Mum gives him grandpa's lounge suite who's dead now, blue, hard, clean. My brother sits scraping out a bong, eating pizzas, almost likely McDonald's because that's where he works. And we sit getting stoned and having something in common. The day we meet our other brother. At Bishopdale Shopping Mall, we all look the same. But he looks like our father and tells us his life is fine, as if we might be robbers who will break into his house and remove everything he has. I tell my brother about my abortion. He doesn't say anything, but later when we are at a bar, he leans over and says to the guy who is talking to me, are you trying to chat up my sister? I relish it for years my sister. I go to a psychic about my brother. I ask why he doesn't love me anymore. He says, it's not about you. It's not about you. I feel like Mary Magdalene. I take my friend round to my brother's. I'm nervous about seeing him on my own, but he's hungover and gentle and shows us the box of ashes. His wife gets home with a new jacket. She puts the box back on the stand. So you've shown them our son, she says, and rips off all the buttons. That poem is another autobiographical one because it speaks of that fantastic ambivalence, that powerful love, that slight anxiety, that not really knowing this person who at the same time you are so deeply tied to. Tell me a little bit about that poem. It is very autobiographical. I don't really make anything up here. It's pretty much about, you know, little vignettes of my relationship with my brother and kind of how sad it is that he's one of the people that I love most in the world, but we have a kind of difficult relationship and thinking back on how things were when we were children particularly around my parents splitting and how I was a bit of a mean older sister sometimes I guess we all do that you know we all look back and wish we hadn't done things but yeah it is just that kind of looking back with kind of sadness I guess at how our relationship has been. 
Before we talk about your collection Blood Clot, which is about Nafanua, there's something else present in your poetry, which is a sense of a larger power, I think. Not the Christian God, because that God mostly gets short shrift in your writing, but more ancient gods. And there's a sense that your characters, if not actually gods and goddesses themselves, are playing out ancient stories according to the whim of these figures. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I started writing Blood Clot with the old stories in mind. So the main character is Nafanua, who is the Samoan goddess of war. And she's a really important figure in Samoan history and mythology. But of course, it morphs over the course of the book into actually becoming me. And I draw on a lot of the old Samoan myths and legends so they're always present there and unlike Greek legends where everyone has that knowledge of them so can pick up the references I guess not so many people have that knowledge of of the Samoan myths and legends to pick the references up but they're actually there all the time So tell me about Blood Clot and Nafanua Nafanua was born from a clot of blood it can be translated as being a miscarriage or an abortion. Um, But anyway, this clot of blood was buried in the earth and she grew out of the earth and became this goddess. And she was the daughter of the king of the underworld and things were going on in in Samoa. Samoans were being enslaved and they called to her for help. So she left the underworld and rode across the ocean with these four magic battle clubs that I name in the next poem and um, basically fought for the people of Samoa for their freedom. That's the old story. Where I take her in the book is, is after that, then she proceeds to travel around the world and as the book goes on, she, she becomes less and less the goddess and more and more the, the human being. Waiting for Nafanoa. This is what she holds in her hand. Uli masau, fa'a uli uli to, tafe sila fai, fa'a mate ngatau, like babies, like the cup. Here is what she does with her feet, left over right, like the old people do, her head behind the sun. This is what she does with her arms, washes them in blood up to her armpits, up to her shoulders. Red frangipanis are not flowers, they are birds, pieces of birds washed in blood left to dry. That is what they are. This is how she holds her hands, the footprints of Ngongo, the four stars in the sky, the sharpest corners to cut the insides of our thighs, the insides of our mouths. This is how to hold the cup, lo avalea. This is where the tanoa will go. This is how she disembowels us, pounds our insides for the other. Take it, say the words, 
pour a little out to her. Forget your God. He is no longer with us. He will be made to walk the street backwards and climb the trees upside down. Nafanua explains her pedigree. It's true. My father is an eel, half eel. No one said anything about his tupuanga oleainga, and no one ever asked. My family is fucked. I mean, really fucked. My father ate my uncles and my aunties. My mother was a Siamese twin. And there's nothing really wrong with that, but her sister took both halves of the heart. My mother married her uncle, which makes me my own niece, and half-half eel, and half-half twin, and my sister, she just hates me. Nafanua watches the old white men. Their scalps are red and the marks on them are not freckles. They are dark, dying pieces. Bits of food stuck in the corners of their mouths and they look like babies. She wants to wipe the bits away as gently as she would for small children. But of course she can't and it hurts her to see them fragile like this in their blue blazers with gold buttons and their earlobes like thinned out jelly. She remembers being 13 in a mall at an ice cream shop and there was a man with a bushy grey beard. He stood there with ice cream in his beard and down his arm to his elbow and his trousers were wet through with piss. It was the first time she realised. It was the first time it made her cry. There's a real empathy in this poem. Old white men, they're possibly the most despised group in Western culture, if you don't count invisible old white women, perhaps. <laughs> and Nafanua looks at them and feels empathy for these unattractive, emasculated people at the end of their lives. Tell me about where that poem came from. It actually came from a couple of things. One was watching an old man and in fact there wasn't really anything to feel sorry about because he's actually quite a high profile person in this country but there was just something very heartbreaking about him in that moment and then remembering something that I'd seen as a teenager, this man, a great big man with a beard and eating an ice cream and the ice cream melting and running down his arms and he'd wet his pants. And um, I just remember watching him and wanting to cry. I just felt so sorry for him. I really affected seeing this great big grown man, just like a child, we might leave Nafanua behind and ask you what you're working on now and what threads you're following at the moment. I found that I've kind of moved away from the kind of character poems that I did 
and wild dogs under my skirt. I've been writing some kind of confessional kind of stuff, more just in my own voice, and more about issues, I guess, that I feel strongly about. So I wrote a series of poems on Gaza for a performance, and the next poem is one of those. I can't write a poem about Gaza. I can't write a poem about Gaza because I cannot eat a whole desert. I can't write a poem about Gaza because I cannot go to bed with the stiff little babies and the bodies of children. There is no room for their little lost limbs, the disembodied arms yanked off like parts in a doll hospital. I can't write a poem about Gaza because if I speak up for the bodies of babies, for the pieces of children, for the women pulling out their own eyes, you will call me anti-Semitic and I must allow the blood of thousands to absolve me. I cannot write a poem about Gaza because my fury and my grief will rise up out of my chest like a missile plotted on a computer in Tel Aviv. It will track me, pinpoint me, and in a perfect arc, it will wind down out of the surgical sky, into the top of my head, and implode me. I can't write a poem about Gaza because Israel has a right to protect itself. 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 And Gaza does not. I cannot write a poem about Gaza because behind every human shield is another human shield and 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 behind that human shield is a human. I cannot write a poem about Gaza because it's complicated, so complicated, very, very complicated. So I cannot write a poem about Gaza until I finish a PhD in Middle Eastern politics and the Holocaust, until I am reborn a Jew and live under the Iron Dome myself. I cannot write a poem about Gaza because Tamar in Tel Aviv has got to get to the supermarket and the garden centre before the next siren. She's putting plants in their bomb shelter and the kids' favourite toys and treats to make it less depressing. I cannot write a poem about Gaza because Fatima in Gaza City has 58 seconds to evacuate her house with her babies before the missile strikes and the only way out is the sea. She has seen pictures on TV of babies thrown into swimming pools and swimming instinctively. I cannot write a poem about Gaza because there is an impenetrable iron dome that covers the entire state. It covers every heart and every mind, except for the few that line up and demand to be imprisoned. 
I cannot write a poem about Gaza because of my friends, Tamar, Shira, Yael, Mikhail, Noya, David, Yair, and Tel Aviv, and Nazareth, and Beersheba. Because every time I point to the blood-soaked, I upset them, offend them, anger them, betray them, let them go. I cannot write a poem about Gaza because of my friend, Ibrahim, and his three exploded daughters and one exploded niece filleted across his living room. I can't write a poem about Gaza because I can do the maths. If 2,168 dead Palestinians divided by 69 dead Israelis equals, find the true value of one Palestinian. Author, performer and poet Samuel and Balangi Tusiata Avia. Now that was from the programme Earshot from Australia's ABC Radio National, produced by Gretchen Miller.